Luke 4, what many people call Jesus' manifesto, what he came to do, how he understood his ministry. So I'm reading from verse 14. And Father, we're really, really glad to have your word. You are so good to have given us your word. We've already heard it expressed as a sword of the Spirit. Well, whatever it is, Lord, it's bread to eat, it's, it's light to our feet, it's nourishment for us, it's guidance for us, but most of all, Lord, it helps us to know you. We want to know you better. So as we read your word and reflect on it for a few moments, Lord, give to us insight through your Holy Spirit so that we may understand more of what we read, that we may come to know you better. For Jesus' sake, Amen. Verse 14 then, Luke 4 verse 14. Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit and news about him spread through the whole countryside. He taught in their synagogues and everyone praised him. He went to Nazareth where he had been brought up and on the Sabbath day he went into the synagogue as was his custom and he stood up to read. The scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to release the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him and he began by saying to them, Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. All spoke well of him and were amazed at the gracious words that came from his lips. Isn't this Joseph's son? they asked. Jesus said to them, Surely you will quote this proverb to me, Physician, heal yourself. Do hear in your hometown what we have heard that you did in Capernaum. I tell you the truth, he continued, no prophet is accepted in his hometown. I assure you that there were many widows in Israel in Elijah's time when the sky was shut for three and a half years and there was a severe famine throughout the land. Yet Elijah was not sent to any of them but to a widow in Zarephath in the region of Sidon. And there were many in Israel with leprosy in the time of Elisha the prophet Yet not one of them was cleansed, only Naaman the Syrian. All the people in the synagogue were furious when he heard this. When they heard this, they got up, drove him out of the town, and took him to the brow of the hill on which the town was built, in order to throw him down the cliff. But he walked right through the crowd and went on his way. That was a warm welcome they gave him, wasn't it? They were about to throw him down a cliff. And if he hadn't died by falling to the bottom of the cliff, they'd have tucked stones on him to kill him. How outrageous is that? These are the people of God. We're not talking about pagans here. We're not talking about Romans here. We're not talking about Gentiles here. We're talking about 
the people of God, doing this to the one who is the anointed one of God. Huh? So in verse 22 we have them all speaking well of him and then by verse 28 they're ready to dismember him limb from limb. Why the animosity? Surely every thoughtful Jew was waiting for precisely this person to come. This Messiah. The one who would be the fulfilment of all God's promises. And they've got to kill him? Jesus is in his hometown and they unexpected, they suddenly and to our ears unexpectedly turn on him. And from the way it's written, or certainly written in our English Bibles, they seem happy that he's the fulfilment of Isaiah's prophecy, they all speak well of him, but they don't like him talking about two Gentiles, one of whom is a woman, even though he's quoting to them from their own scriptures. Well, we need to examine the passage a little more closely. The word of God is not only the word of God, but it's also the word of, written by men, and we have to study it to work out what it means. Otherwise, it's of no value to us if we just have it up. It's not magic. The word of God is not magic. So we have to understand what it's all about. So we have to dig into the little text. So first we're going to do a little geography, all right? Geography, you good at that? I had, we had in my school, apparently by common schoolboy consent, the best geologer, geographer in the south of London. He was an absolutely useless teacher. Apparently he knew more geography than anyone else in south London, so we understood, but he was completely useless at teaching it. But anyway, there you go. I don't even remember his name now. We're going to do some geography. Nazareth... Nazareth is not mentioned in the Old Testament. Did you know that? It actually doesn't appear in the time of the Old Testament. It was actually settled in the second century before Christ, in the bit that is the gap between the Old and the New Testament. And it's only mentioned in the New Testament in two contexts. One is relating to the birth of Jesus. He, was, he lived his early, early, year, early years in Nazareth, born in Bethlehem, but moved to Nazareth. And it's also used to describe him. He is Jesus of Nazareth. That's the only two contexts. The last mention of Galilee, because that's where it is, Nazareth is in Galilee, is in Isaiah 9. And this is how Isaiah put it. In the past, God humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, but in the future he will honour Galilee of the nations. When Matthew tells us that Jesus relocated his base of operations from Nazareth to Capernaum. He says it was in fulfilment of that prophecy, but when he quotes it, he changes it slightly. And this is how he puts it. Land of Zebulun and land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. So Galilee is a Gentile area where Jesus grew up, is a Gentile area. But Nazareth was apparently a fully conservative or Jewish town. It had been created to be a settler town in the midst of a Gentile area. The Jews wanted to take back that area for themselves. 
They wanted to make Galilee of the Gentiles into Galilee of the Jews. And such a town would be intensely nationalistic. It would be politically nationalistic, it would be culturally nationalistic, and it would be religiously nationalistic. So how would they have received Jesus' message? He announces what he's come to do in this nationalistic village in the heart of a Gentile area. A village that had been placed there in order to take back the land from the Gentiles for the Jews. That's why it had been established. So let's now read what Jesus quoted in announcing what he had come to do. This is how he writes it. He reads it, The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he's anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim freedom from the, for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to release the oppressed and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour. If you have an NIV, you'll see a little letter at the end of that quote and if you go to the bottom of the page it will tell you that comes from Isaiah 61 verses 1 and 2. No, it doesn't. Yes, it does. No, it doesn't. Yes, it does. Because it's not the whole quote. He missed some out and he's added something from another part. Of Isaiah. So it's not just Isaiah 61 verses 1 and 2. It's Isaiah 61 verses 1 and 2 minus a bit, and this is a bit he missed out. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted. And he's added a bit from Isaiah 58 verse 6, and this is what he's added to set the oppressed free. But worse than that, he's cut it in half. You see, it's never a good thing just to take a verse out of the Bible and fling it around. What you need to know is where it belongs, where that verse belongs. And so to his hearers, they knew what he had started to read and they would not have expected him to stop where he stopped. Not only because he cuts the sentence in half, but because he cuts the whole quotation in half. This is how it would have gone on. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favour, which is where Jesus finishes, and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn and provide for those who grieve in Zion, to bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, the oil of joy instead of mourning, and a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. They will be called mighty oaks, a planting of the Lord for the display of his splendour. They will rebuild the ancient ruins and restore the places long devastated. They will renew the ruined cities that have been devastated for generations. Strangers will shepherd your flocks. Foreigners will work your fields and vineyards. And you will be called priests of the Lord. You will be named ministers of our God. You will feed on the wealth of nations and in their riches you will boast. Instead of your shame, you will receive a double portion. And instead of disgrace, you will rejoice in your inheritance. And so you will inherit a double portion in your land. And everlasting joy will be yours. And Jesus left all that out. And his hearers would have been infuriated by it. Because you see, in those days, they didn't have daily readings where they gave you one verse, or even a half of a verse, or even a third of a verse, and then a page of explanation. The only way you could read scripture was by reading it. It was in a scroll. We couldn't have done what I did and said, turn to Luke 4, verse 14. You couldn't have done that those days. 
I would have had to say to you, let's turn to the scroll of Luke and we'll begin reading at the beginning. And then when I got to the bit I wanted to talk about, we'd have talked about it. So everyone knows the context of everything. But now we have chapters and verses. We know the verses, but we don't know the context of anything. But they would have been infuriating. Now Luke 4.22 says, All spoke well of him and were amazed at the gracious words that came from his lips. Isn't this Joseph's son, they asked. The way the NIV translates it makes it sound as if they like what he said, doesn't it? Their comments mean, basically, we knew this young man as a child. He's Joseph's son. We had no idea. He was so bright and poised. How well he read the Hebrew in the synagogue. We're so proud of him. That's what it sounds like, doesn't it? But And here I'm indebted to those scholars who understand these things far greater than I. I dive into their books and take them wholesale out because I need their information. It's not the only way to understand those words. And apparently it's up to the translator as to how you translate one of the key phrases in there. If you think this is positive, you can translate it positively. But if you think it's negative, you translate it negatively. So you could translate it like this. And all witnessed against him and were amazed at the words of mercy that came out of his mouth. And they said, is not this Joseph's son? And in this case, their question means, doesn't, didn't this young man grow up here? Doesn't he know how we feel? Doesn't he understand how we understand this text? What on earth does he think he's doing? That's how you can translate it. Which makes more sense with the change of atmosphere otherwise at verse 28. It seems to come out of the blue, doesn't it? They thought well of him in verse 22. What are they thinking of doing? Killing him in verse 28. But if they're already outraged at the way he's mishandled their scriptures, they're already furious that he's taken bits out, puts bit in, cut things off. What on earth do you think he's doing? Doesn't he know the whole reason we're here? Is what Isaiah was talking about. This is what it means. Their question is, they were astonished that he was speaking about God's grace. Grace for everybody! including the nations, instead of grace for Israel and fear's judgment on the Gentiles. That's what they're upset about. They've turned a passage of Isaiah that appears to prophesy grace to Israel, but judgment to the Gentiles. He appears to have turned it into a message of grace for everybody. What does he think he's doing? And they are furious. Now these are the people of God, my friends. This messianic reading from Isaiah is at the heart of how they understand themselves. They thought Isaiah was predicting a golden age of the Messiah, a golden age and the great things were going to happen. So his omission of the second half of verse 2 no doubt deeply angers them because he stops at precisely the point at which judgment and servitude is pronounced on the Gentiles, and they were looking forward to that with great anticipation, but he stops before that comes. They were there to displace the Gentiles, to make Galilee of the Gentiles into 
Galilee of the Jews. But that was wor- what was worse was what he stopped talking after that verse. You see, the next verse is promise that they will build and plant precisely what they are doing. This is why the town had been established. Their goal was to rebuild the devastated ruins and possess the land. That was what they were there for. And that's what Isaiah was promising. They would be served, furthermore, by the Gentiles. The Gentiles around them would become, according to Isaiah's prophecy, their servants. And the wealth of the Gentiles would come to the Jews. Are you getting the picture now? You get the idea? This sounds very good if you're a Jew. It doesn't sound too good if you're not. But it sounds really good if you're a Jew, doesn't it? But there's a day coming when all these folk around who dominated your land for so long actually come and serve you and bring their wealth and you're the top dog and they are your servants. So therefore you are free to be priests of God, free to be ministers of of God. You can understand how that understanding of Isaiah 9, so Isaiah 61, is very, very attractive to a settler community. So what does Jesus think he's doing? But his understanding is completely different. And he's deliberately gone to Nazareth to make this bombshell of an announcement. He knows exactly where he is. He knows exactly what his neighbors think. He knows exactly what their history is all about. He knows what they're hoping for. And he comes here and he throws this little hand grenade into the middle and says, what about that then? This isn't some guy saying, I've come to make all things nice and good for you. Isn't that lovely? Not a bit of it. Not a bit of it. What he's saying is about the worst possible thing they can hear. Today, he says, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. We're not looking at a future day now, he says. It's actually happening even as I'm speaking. And the way his reading is constructed, the way he draws things together, the way he constructs his reading, puts the emphasis in three places. First of all, there's a proclamation. And then there is justice, all motivated by compassion. The proclamation is Good news to the poor. I've come to proclaim good news to the poor. Who are the poor? Well, you might be mistaken for thinking that they were the poor who didn't have much money. That is the poor. That is a legitimate understanding of the poor. But Isaiah elsewhere has his emphasis on poverty in a different way. Isaiah 66 says this, these are the ones I look on with favour, those who are humble, the word is also translated poor, those who are poor and contrite in spirit and who tremble at my word. Those are the poor. I bring come to bring good news to the poor, not just the materially poor, but those who are humble and contrite in heart and who tremble at my name or my word. And the point is, that applies to everyone, whoever they may be. If they are a Roman centurion and they tremble at the word of God, Jesus has come to bring good news to them. 
And if you're a Jew and you do not tremble at God's word, then you have no good news coming to you. Do you see how this will upset people who think they are on a fast track to the blessing of God just so long as they stay in one place and live a life that they think honours God but they don't tremble at his word? As Luke continues to write his gospel, we're going to find plenty of the Jews don't tremble at God's word. Far from it! They're going to kill the word of God. They try now, don't succeed, but they're going to succeed later on, aren't they? They're going to do the unthinkable and take the Messiah, their Messiah, and kill him. So this is good news to the poor, and the poor is whoever, whoever is poor and humble. Jesus comes as a Messiah, not just for the Jews. He comes as the Jewish Messiah, but he comes as a saviour of the world. And you and I have just been praying for France. would be pretty pointless if Jesus only came for the Jews, wouldn't it? Because you and I wouldn't be saved and we wouldn't be bothering to worry about France because most of them aren't Jews. But aren't we glad that Jesus came not just for the Jews, but as the Jewish Messiah, as the Jewish King, in order to be King of the earth. The second emphasis he makes is justice. He sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners, to set the oppressed free. And this is where he puts a little bit in from Isaiah 58. A chapter you know speaks about fasting, where God says, you fast, you think I'm impressed with your fasting because you don't eat food, but I tell you what you do do, you oppress each other while you're doing that. I'm not impressed with you not eating any food when you mistreat each other. The kind of fast I'm looking for, this is a Charles Erica, very free translation, okay? The kind of fast I'm looking for is where you look after each other. You care for those who are sick. You look after the oppressed. That's the verse he slipped in. Where you care for justice. You've got some things on the back shelves there, things from Tear Fund and so forth and other things. You read them carefully, you'll find they're motivated by a desire for justice. For people at the moment who are oppressed and beleaguered, just want justice and righteousness. And it's also motivated by compassion and recovery of sight for the blind. That's the motivation for the proclamation of good news. That's the motivation for justice. And all those three work together. Here's a quote from one theologian. Every disciple of Jesus Christ has his or her special calling. The preacher, the one who proclaims the good news, all right, knows that those marching for justice are an important part of the team. You can't speak this message of good news without having a concern for justice. Thoughtful justice advocates know that the justice of God must judge the justice for which they strive. It's not about me saying, I think this is wrong, put it right so I'm happy. I must be one who recognizes it's God's justice I'm looking for, not mine. And those who show compassion in whatever form realize that without a message that changes hearts and without a just society, their work is incomplete. You need all three. And Jesus is saying, I've come to proclaim good news, to care about justice, all motivated by love. And this reverses the expectation of the people. He wasn't just another prophet bringing the word of God. He was the future 
coming in the present. But his audience were offended, but he had taken a message of judgment for the Gentiles and turned it into a declaration of mercy. They were outraged that he, a local boy, who did not apparently understand the village had been set up for this purpose in the first place. Nor that the Messianic age would be great news for the Jews, but a catastrophe for the Gentiles. Didn't he understand that? He'd turned everything on its head. His quotation from Isaiah reverses the expectation. They were looking, when the Messiah came, at what they could receive from the Messiah. And Jesus said, I am the Messiah, and I'm about to tell you what I expect you to give. See the difference? This is explosive stuff, isn't it? And furthermore, when he looks for two, for, for two examples of faith, who would you have gone for if you'd been a Jew and you wanted an example of faith? Who does Paul go for? Abraham, Moses, David, Joseph. But Jesus doesn't choose any of those. He chooses a widow of Zarephath, whose name we don't even know. And she's a Gentile, not a Jew. And he chooses Naaman the Syrian, who's an army commander, and a Gentile, not a Jew. They're in their scriptures, but he's really winding them up deliberately. Because he wants to break them out of this small-minded mindset that says the blessings of God are for us and not for anyone else. And this is why they will not see the coming of the Lord. Because they are still locked into this closed mindset. And Jesus has to break them out. Faith in the New Testament involves three things. Intellectual assent. I believe what you're saying is true. A daily walk of trust where you maintain faith in God in the ups and downs, and obedience. Faith is only authentic if it results in my obedience. If I don't do it, then it's not faith. And both the widow and Naaman's actions, if you read their stories in 1 Kings and 2 Kings, you'll find they express those very three elements. So who is the good news for? No wonder Jesus' neighbours acted so viciously. He's about to take their precious understanding and ruin it. And he would do that throughout his ministry. You read the Gospels and you find they get more and more cross with him. The common people who don't have preconceived notions hear him gladly. But those who have some idea of what's coming or they think they know get really cross with him and bend their time trying to kill him. Because the kingdom of God, my friends, is not of this world. So the good news of the gospel is for the humble and contrite in heart, whoever they are. In choosing Gentiles, Jesus demonstrates that the gospel is open to all, regardless of nationality. If you're a Brit, praise the Lord. If you're French, praise the Lord. If you're Romanian, praise the Lord. Because the gospel is for you, not just for Jews. And Jesus mentioning two Gentiles tells us that. In choosing a woman and a man, we hardly notice the implication of that. But in Jesus' day, that was radical talk. The gospel is not just for men, it's for women. 
It is gender, gender non-specific. It's for kids as well as for older people. Whoever you are, the gospel is for everyone. So as you think of France and pray for France, think of the widows who still wear the classic black widow weeds. Think of the children in the villages that you've visited and everyone in between. The gospel is for all of them. In choosing a widow at the bottom of the social pile and an army commander at the top of the social pile, Jesus demonstrates that the gospel is for all, regardless of their position in society. So it's for the sophisticated academics in Paris and for the guy who stamps your ticket when you go over through the ferry and everyone in between, the fisherman off Brittany and the farmer on the lavender fields. Jesus said this even though he knew that the town's agenda was to reclaim land from the Gentiles who had moved to Galilee from such places as Zarephath and Sidon. But Jesus says, I've come for these people. So, Here's my final thought. God reserves the right to save the wrong kind of people. Never forget that. God reserves the right to save the wrong kind of people. These were the people of God and they hadn't got it. How blind can they be? So as we look at our word of God, let me warn you. As you read the Word of God, as you listen to the Word of God, never assume you know what it says. Because these people assume they know what it says. Let the Spirit lead you into truth. Work hard at it. Study hard at it. Read those who know more than you do. You can come to grips with the Word of God because it suddenly sets free. The Gospel truly is for all people. It infuriated the Jews of Nazareth that day. Jesus came to those who were his own, but his own did not receive him, says John in his Gospel. But he goes on, to all who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision, or a husband's will, but born of God. So as you pray for France, pray that people will receive him, believe in his name. It won't matter who they are, what their position, what their background, they can know life in all its fullness. Let me pray. Father, your word is truth. Your spirit is life. May we, as we pray for France and any other places in the world and any other neighbours we have this week, pray your kingdom come, your will be done on earth, that our neighbours and friends and these neighbours across the channel might come to see you, the Messiah, King of the world, as the one who has good news for everyone who will believe. Let it be so, Lord, for Jesus' sake. Amen.